we're about to dive into some of the strongest controversies concerning eschatology and the last days. Listen to me. If you do not believe in a pre-tribulational rapture, if you're mid-tribulation, pre-wrath, post-tribulation, I want you to hang in here with me, and I want you to listen to every point that's made. And we want to hear from you in the comments. We want to hear your questions, your concerns, but I want you to listen to this at length. And I want to hear what you have to say because I believe what you're about to hear is liberating and transforming. There have been a myriad of lies, deception, and propaganda that's been promulgated throughout the body of Christ, particularly about the rapture of the church being a relatively new teaching. We're going to take the cover off today with a brand new book, Recent Pre-Trib Findings in the Early Church Fathers, where Lee Brainerd has done unparalleled research into this subject and you're going to be startled by what he has found. Plus, we're going to answer a whole host of questions concerning the rapture of the church in this broadcast. This is one encounter today you do not want to miss. Here he is, our honored guest, Lee Brainerd. Brother Lee Brainerd, it is so good to have you on Encounter Today. Thanks for joining us. Uh, Alan, it's a pleasure to be with you guys this is an exciting subject that we're going to take up, the soon coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and the fact that that was believed in the early church. Uh, it's so exciting, and we're going to dive into a lot of controversy surrounding the rapture of the church, answering a lot of questions. But first, where did this passion in your life for eschatology begin? Well, when I was a young man, I was in the uh, Second Ranger Battalion at Fort Lewis, Washington. This would be back in 1980 and 1981. My roommate, when, when we first got to the Ranger Battalion, discovered that I had come into the Army and didn't bring a Bible with me. And his, mm. I, his, he, he was like, dude, what's wrong? Well, they, of course, we didn't say dude back then. But he was like, what's wrong with you, you knothead? You're a Christian? You don't have a Bible? So he drove me to a Christian bookstore, bought me a King James Study Bible, the Dakes Annotated Reference uh, Bible. Yes. And I got rolling in that bad boy. And you know what? Within a few months, my whole life was turned upside down and inside out. I've never been the same. And I got excited right from the beginning about the fact that, about Bible prophecy that the Lord's going to come back. And when he comes back, he's going to drain the swamp and take mm. the trash out. And this world is going to be what he designed it to be. Uh, what an exciting message. You know, a lot of people look at eschatology and think it's kind of a doom and gloom message. But you're so full of joy and excitement. Why is this message not one of doom and gloom, but one of hope? Well, for instance, when we are in Revelation chapter 4 and 5, mm -hmm. and, and we see folks are weeping because nobody's worthy to open the scrolls well, and the seals. Well, they're not weeping because, uh, because they don't get to see the judgment happen. They're weeping because once you get inside the scroll and get past the judgments, the beauties and blessings of the eternal kingdom are coming. And, and, and so if you can't get past this short stretch of ugly, you can't have the good. And, and that's what we need to see as believers, that the, the core of Bible prophecy, even though there's things like ugly stuff like the tribulation and the Antichrist, the heart and soul of Bible prophecy isn't that stuff. The heart and soul of it is that the Lord Jesus Christ in his flesh and blood, eternal glory body, is going to be on here on earth and reigning forever. Ah, and we're going to rule and reign Amen. right there beside him, undeservedly so. Undeservedly Amen. so, but thank, thankful for his grace and his mercy. We're going to receive the full weight and manifestation of the redemption he provided for us 
on the cross. And you talk a lot about as I, as I go into your your prophecy teachings, which are amazing. We're going to provide a link to your YouTube channel in the description. I encourage everybody to go subscribe. You talk about a prophetic convergence. What yes. do you what do you mean by prophetic convergence? Well, prophetic convergence is the is simply the fact that there's probably about a hundred different aspects of Bible prophecy right now that are coming together in in an accelerated pace. Uh, so that we've got the technology for the mark of the beast. We have technology for the surveillance of the population. We have technology to change man's DNA and his genetic code. And we have things that are going on right now for uh, this, the geopolitical stage setting for the Middle East and geopolitical stage setting for the Roman Empire revived in the last days, the geopolitical stage setting for the Russian uh, juggernaut, We've got all this stuff going on right now, and we could list dozens more. I'm sure you could list dozens more. But what's interesting about this is when I was a babe in the Lord back in the 70s and 80s, we saw the first inkling of this coming on. But back then, we could see it coming on the horizon. We could see the early stages of it. We're neck deep in this stuff right now. Wow. And it is... uh well, it's like a raging fire, and if the Lord doesn't come back soon, we're going to get run over by it. Wow, it's so true. And we're not we're not saying that these things are signs that this is the generation because the rapture, of course, is a signless event. That's but they're right. reminders that yeah. the rapture is imminent. So we're going to get into some of the common objections to the rapture. But there's a lot of people out there, you know, they're like pre, mid, pre-wrath, post, I'm pan-trib, however it pans out. It's fine with me. Why, why is it important, and it becomes such a passion in your life, to help believers understand the pre-tribulational rapture of the church? Well, if it was merely just putting the, uh, the right point on the right place on a prophecy chart, if that was all that was involved, it would be a secondary issue where the rapture happens. Mm. But the fact of the matter is, to get the timing of the rapture right really involves a much broader question. And that's uh, the relationship between Israel and the church. So we're now we're talking ecclesiology and not just eschatology. Wow. But it also involves the fact that the 70th week is clearly spoken in the scriptures to be part and parcel with the first 69 weeks of the 70 weeks from Daniel chapter 9. And so when this 70th week comes, it's going to have the same relationship to Israel that the first 69 did. This means the church can't be here. So... When we're dealing with this issue, we're dealing not just with eschatology, but with ecclesiology. The other thing that's involved in this whole question is uh, the, the replacement theology aspect. A lot of people, uh, they get so confused on this issue. And even people that understand that there's premillennial coming of the Lord and they get that part right and they understand that they still get confused on the tribulation aspect. So there's a lot of people that are premillennial. They didn't rob that from mm -hmm. Israel, but they did rob the tribulation from Israel. So uh, what's, we have to understand that the tribulation belongs to Israel because what God is doing here in the tribulation, he's not returning to the law. What he's doing is returning to the people that are under the law so that he can bring them into the glories and blessings of the new covenant. 
Wow. He wants to give national Israel the same new covenant blessings that we have as individuals right now in the church age. And if, if you can't see that, you're going to be confused on a lot of issues and not just the timing of the rapture. Yeah, it speaks to a fundamental misunderstanding of the purpose of the tribulation, that it is an outpouring of the wrath of God, the likes of which the world has never seen. There's a lot of people who say, well, who do you think you are, right? Who do you think you are? Christians have suffered persecution, tribulation throughout all of human history, and you think, you Western believer, think that you're going to be able to escape tribulation. How how haughty of you. What's your response yes. to that? Well, we've been under tribulation for 2,000 years. I think people have rose-colored blinders on, especially if they've been living in, in, in the Western part of the world, especially mm-hmm. America, where we've had uh, unprecedented freedom of religion and freedom and, and economic freedom that the rest of the world's never had. So when we look at history, though, in general, we see nothing but century after century after century of the church suffering tremendously under persecuting powers, whether the Islamic powers, whether the Roman Catholic powers, whether the pagan Roman powers. We, we come into the modern days and we see the church suffering tremendously under the Iron Curtain, under the Bamboo Curtain, under Hitler's Germany. It's the, the freedom that we have here in America and in certain other parts of the West is an anomaly in mm-hmm. church history. Mm-hmm. And it's unfair to point to this freedom and claim that the church is, is escaping tribulation with the pre-tribulation rapture. Why don't you tell that to the saints in Iran or in North Korea or in China? That's right. Right now. And I heard someone put it this way. Since we are part of the body of Christ, if the church were to go through the tribulation, it would be the equivalent of God crucifying his son a second time. And he is not about to do that, that Jesus has received the wrath of God upon himself and we are in him and we're going to be called up to be together with him. Isn't that what the tribulation is all about? The outpouring of a distinct, direct wrath of almighty God. Absolutely. It's, it's the eschatological wrath of God. And it's a, a wrath of a type that can be poured out upon the earthly people of God, Israel, once they get into the tribulation and on the Gentiles that are the Gentile proselytes. But this wrath cannot be poured out on the body of Christ because the body of Christ is attached to the head of Christ. And if you're pouring out wrath on the body, you're pouring out wrath on the head. That makes zero sense. Hmm. So uh, from that perspective, absolutely, we cannot be here. And there's a qualitative distinction between the wrath that's coming in the tribulation and the wrath that man has experienced in a more general sense that pertains to the curse throughout the entire history of the world. When, when we look at, for instance, the fourth seal alone takes a one quarter of the world's population. If, if, that's, uh. if we go with 8 billion, that's 2 billion people. Uh. That is 20 times the highest death toll estimated for World War II and in a shorter period of time. That's definitely wrath. Devastating, unlike anything that's ever been seen, Jesus said, or will ever be seen. And I want to ask you, too, you mentioned uh, ecclesiology, eschatology, ecclesiology specifically. Let's talk about bibliology, if we can, because a pre-tribulational rapture, an understanding of it, speaks to the way that one approaches Scripture and the way that one reads Scripture. So could you talk to us a little bit about why people who take Scripture literally lean in one direction versus another, and maybe even give us some of your 
uh, qualifications, like your education, where you come from. I forgot to ask you that at the beginning. You have such a unique depth of knowledge in this area. Yes, well, f- first of all, I'll take up the uh, the education question, and then let's move into the, the historical grammatical hermeneutic. Mm-hmm. A lot of people are amazed when they find out that I actually do not have a formal Bible, e- Bible education at all. But as a young believer, I had... I was in the Ranger Battalion. I read a magazine article about a a one-eyed Baptist preacher from Anglesey, England, uh, Christmas Evans. And in that article, he had taught himself while riding horseback between his appointments and his his conferences, he taught himself Latin, Greek, and Hebrew. And I Hmm. thought to myself, why would anyone learn Latin, Greek, and Hebrew? I, I was such an ignorant babe, I didn't even know that the Greek New Testament was written in Greek. <laughs> but once I found out, a fire got lit in me, because if the Bible, the New Testament was originally written in Greek, and if the Old Testament was originally written 99.99% in Hebrew and a little bit in, in Aramaic, then I was going to learn those languages. And, and so I went after it. I went to the Christian bookstore. I bought a Greek grammar, a Greek New Testament, and a Greek lexicon. And I went after Greek. And as a babe in the Lord, I was probably saved like three years so or so. And I came to a point where I realized this study is not going fast enough. So I set aside a year, and I decided I'm either going to learn to read the Greek New Testament or I'm going to, or I'm going to die trying, <laughs> and, or I'm going to starve to death. So mm. I just started reading. I was going to read a chapter a day by the end of the year. I could easily, fluently read most of the stuff in the New Testament. Wow. I, that was what I read. And I've been reading the Greek New Testament since then for four decades, and I've added some classical Greek, patristic Greek, uh, extra-biblical Greek from the Koine era. Uh, it's been a fascinating study. So that's, that's where I got my education. I just an uh, insatiable hunger gathering the, the best books by the best authors on every field of theology and then pursuing the Bible languages. Now, when we come to the question of the historical grammatical hermeneutic, or which is the technical term that we use for the literal interpretation of Scripture, uh, this is absolutely essential and critical. It, basically, when we talk about literal versus non-literal, the area that gets touched on the most is Bible prophecy. Mm-hmm. Yes. Because people that do not want to take Bible prophecy literally will intentionally interpret it allegorically. Now, if, if, you, you're, if you're confused and you're thinking, well, aren't there figures of speech in the Bible? I mean, well, yeah, there is. But here's the difference. Under the literal interpretation of Scripture, we take everything literal unless it's impossible to take it literal. For instance, when the Bible says that Jesus is the Lamb of God, we have to take that in a figurative sense yes. because we know he's not literally a little 120-pound lamb. Now, when we come to something like uh, the Antichrist, we take that literal mm-hmm. because it can be taken literal. There's not an absolute necessity to take it figurative. And when we come to the thousand years of the millennium, there's no reason not to take that literally. And the allegorical method, what they do is they will intentionally interpret things allegorically that can easily be interpreted literally. Once you get that distinction in your mind straight, you just go after the scriptures 
and you take everything literally unless it's impossible to take it literal. That's so important and such a good point because how we approach the Word of God is key. And if we approach it literally, appropriately, then we're going to come away with certain understandings. And if we're not getting our understanding of the rapture correct, it's because we're approaching the Bible in an incorrect way, and it can affect so many different areas of our Christian life. I want to get into now some of the objections and questions. Those of you that are watching online, put some rapture questions in the comments here because we want to make sure on this program that we continue to answer those questions. And be sure to subscribe uh, to Brother Lee's YouTube channel. The link is in the description too because he's always on there answering questions and providing rapture nuggets, as he says, uh, for us to uh, build our faith in and strengthen our hope in. Before I answer or ask some specific questions, what have you found to be some of the most prominent objections to the rapture of the church, the pre-tribulational rapture of the church uh, that you've run into? Well, the most common one is simply, well, hey, it's right there in Matthew 24. We're going to go through the tribulation. 2431. Well, I can empathize with that thinking a little bit. I was a young believer, and I came to that passage, and it led me to conclude the same thing. But here's the, the rub. If we are going to practice literal interpretation of Scripture and let the context speak, you look at Matthew 24. Do you see the church in Matthew 24? Well, I see people who are uh, being faithful in, in the temple services because— and I see people faithful to the Sabbath. I see people that live in Judea, mm -hmm. and they're supposed to flee and go to the Judean mountains. Well, this context is Jews that live in Israel. Yeah. And it's not legitimate to take and apply it to anybody else. And so right there, that's, that's the primary reason I see is just a superficial interpretation of Scripture. So in Matthew twenty four thirty one, when it says, immediately after the tribulation of those days, Yes. He will send his angels with a great sound of the trumpet, and they will gather his chosen people from the four winds of the earth. You're saying that that does not refer to the rapture of the church. So if it's not referring to the rapture of the church, what is it referring to? The, the promised gathering of Israel that's promised dozens of times in the hmm. Old Testament. And what a blessing this is. What, what people need to understand is the Lord has his individual salvation program which is the church program, and then he has the national Israel program. They, the, both of them involve the new covenant, but the first one is individuals being saved as individuals. The second one is the nation of Israel being saved and brought together in the new covenant so she can inherit her old covenant promises, the land promises, temple promises, throne promises, kingdom promises. She cannot inherit them merely because she's got the Mosaic law. She cannot inherit them merely because they're circumcised or, or born into the Jewish blood lineage. They have to believe on Jesus the Messiah to receive their Old Testament promises. So glorious that God is fulfilling, checking every box, Amen. every promise that he's made. And it's going to come to pass exactly as he said it was going to come to pass. So when we're looking at that then, and if we don't see the rapture directly referred to there in that passage, and there are, there are many in different camps who will look at the second part of Revelation, Matthew 24 and, and see whether or not the, the, the rapture is mentioned there. Let's, let's elude that for a moment. Let's get away from that. And let's talk about the rapture as a mystery. Okay. Where is the rapture in Scripture? Um, if you were to have to point to some verses that prove that the rapture is pre-tribulational, 
Why do you believe that the rapture is pre-tribulational, and uh, why isn't it in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? Well, if people understand that the church program was future when the apostles were on earth walking with the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord said in, in the book of Matthew, I will build my church. It didn't exist yet. And when we come to Pentecost, that's usually pointed to as the time of the birth of the church. Some people will, will, will say that's just the foundation, and they'll go to when the Gentiles were first added. They're thinking like Ephesians chapter 2, when the first Gentiles were added to the Jews and made one new man. Well, I, I, I think the one new man argument is good, but I still look at Pentecost as the birthday of the church, Mm -hmm. which is where most people go. Now, at this point, the the disciples are starting to understand that this is a new work that God is doing. And so now we have new prophetic uh, pictures for the church. Because if the church is one new man, she's not going to this Gentile church is gathered from every nation on earth is not the people that are going to inherit that little postage stamp piece of land called Israel. We have our own set of promises. So we come into Paul's ministry and the, the mystery of the church was in, in my understanding, it's explained in Ephesians, but the, the rapture aspect is first presented in, in first and second Thessalonians, particularly first Thessalonians. But we have some interesting information associated with it that's that's uh, revealed in Second Thessalonians. Once we understand that the church was a new work and a mystery, then it's easy to understand that the rapture of the church is also a mystery, and it wasn't known. Now, once you see the doctrinal truth of the pre-tribulation rapture, now you can go back to the Old Testament and you can see the typologies that would hint at it but didn't teach it, and now you can find a few passages in the Gospels where now that you learn the truth from Paul forwards about the pre-trib rapture, now you can say, oh, you know what? I think this might be alluding to the rapture too, like mm-hmm. John 14. John 14. Now, that's so important. Okay, we're going to talk about that in a second. But we, this is what we're going to get to, ladies and gentlemen. I believe this is your latest book. It is. Recent pre-trib findings in the early church fathers because one of the most common misconceptions is that the pre-tribulational rapture of the church is a new teaching, which is so easily debunked, it's it's ridiculous. But you've gone even deeper. So we're going to get to that in a moment. Hang on, folks. That's the meat of what we're getting into here soon. But John 14 is so key. When I think of John 14, 1 through 3, my heart leaps within me. And in every other eschatological view, apart from the pre-tribulational rapture, that promise is allegorized, spiritualized, and not a reality. Why is that promise so important? Well, what we see in John 14 is the Lord's promise of the church. The next time I physically interact with you, I'm taking you where I am right now, my father's house in heaven. Mm. And what a blessing that is going to be when the bride gets united with the groom. Mm. And, and, and it says, and, and we're going to be with him forever, we read, in, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. So this is a tremendous promise. Now, if the anti-pre-trib camp, they'll take this John 14 passage, and instead of being a vertical thing that's going to take us to the new Jerusalem, now it's a horizontal thing that takes us just 
sideways here on planet Earth. We don't go to the Father's house. Now, they'll say, well, the temple in Jerusalem is going to be the Father's house. But but that's not the Father's house that's being talked about in John 14. Yeah, no question. And it's such a glorious promise that is going to be fulfilled, ladies and gentlemen. You are going to get to go to the Father's house where there are many mansions. And if Amen. it weren't so, he would have told you. And he's gone to prepare a place for you that where he is there you may be also. So uh, another objection, Brother Brainerd, is that people will say, you're saying there are two comings, two second comings of Jesus. Um, there's not going to be two second comings. There's one return of Jesus. He's coming down to the earth. What is your response to that? I say, if you listen, when we talk about two comings, we're talking pragmatically. This is not theological accuracy. It's just pragmatic. The If we want to be theologically precise, there's one second coming. There's one parousia. That is the day the Lord descends from heaven to take control of this earth, to tear, carry the trash out, set up his kingdom. But if you look at, for instance, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, we read about two things that are closely associated. We read about the parousia, and we read about the apontesis of the parousia. The parousia is the glorious appearing of the king in his glory coming to his own dominion. The apontesis is the going out to meet the king. In, in the ancient Greek and Roman culture, when, when a king was approaching uh, Rome to take his throne, when when Caesar was or the emperor was, or when he was coming to uh, the capital of one of his uh, states that he's in dominion over, same thing. When he's coming for that visit, the population would go out a half day's journey, a day's journey, sometimes two days journey, and they would accompany him in his train to the Perusia. And th so they would be part of the Perusia. That's what the apontesis is. So the rapture, is the apontesis aspect. That's when the church goes out to meet the Lord. The parousia is when we come back with him. So it, once we understand that the rapture is just an aspect of the second coming, if we're talking technically and theologically, it resolves all the difficulties. When we talk about two comings, it's just pragmatic. That's such a good answer. A lot of people use that illustration in the post-tribulational camp to say we're not going to be in heaven. We're just going to go meet him and come right back down, but you're saying that we're actually going to be with him for some time during the tribulation, just like yes. they did back in those days. Absolutely. And, you know, in that coming, which was in a relatively short window of time, they, they might be out there with the Lord for, with their Lord for a half a day, a day or two days. Uh, occasionally it was even longer than that. When our longer time frame, we're talking about the tribulation plus whatever length that window is between the rapture and the start of the 70th week, um, we have that, that big window of time before we come back with the Lord. Which is necessary because otherwise there is no place for the judgment seat of Christ uh, to take place. There's nowhere for that to happen, much less for John 14, 1, correct? Absolutely, absolutely. And the judgment seat of Christ it, it that's let me just say this briefly here folks sometimes christians walk in fear over the mm. judgment seat of christ now we should have a healthy respect of the lord especially if we're living carnally yes but if if we've come back to the lord after a period of backsliding and in our heart is right with the lord he's not going to deal harshly with us at the judgment seat of christ 
The things that can't be rewarded are going to burn up and be forgotten. And everything that can be rewarded is going to be rewarded with the same magnanimous grace that, uh, that saved us in the first place, which gives us a million times more than we deserve. So we need to be excited about this day. Unless you're intentionally living in wicked rebellion against the Lord, there's no reason to fear that day. That's what we're excited about, ladies and gentlemen. Amen. It's not the destruction of the world that we're excited about. We're not a death cult. We're yep. excited about seeing him face to face. Amen. And and reveling in his grace and in his mercy. And and to add a finer point to that, the first advent of Jesus Christ took place in stages. That's right. Took place in phases from his incarnation to his crucifixion to his resurrection, ascension. And then he came back down. He said, don't touch me. I've not yet ascended to the Father. And then he goes and tells Thomas, touch me. So obviously he had ascended to the Father by that point. Would that be called the second coming? you got to get out of the weeds in this stuff, ladies and gentlemen, and yep. see just the, the point that's being communicated. We are dealing with mysteries, by the way. We are seeing through a glass darkly. So we need to hold to what we see sternly and, and clearly focused on in the Word of God. So there's not two second comings. There's one second coming, and the bookends are the rapture of the church and then when he touches down on the Mount of Olives uh, to bring his kingdom to the earth. So now let's talk about something that's near and dear to you, the phrase, a thief in the night. Is that referring to the rapture of the church, or is that talking about the second coming of Jesus Christ? What what does that phrase mean? Because it's all over the New Testament, by the way. I, I harp on this all the time, that you could sum up New Testament eschatology with one word, watch. And any other view removes that word. It robs us of that anchor, eschatological anchor. Talk to us about what it means to be a thief in the night. Well, the thief in the night, if people can understand the picture that the rapture of the church is the morning star of the day of the Lord, and then Mm. the tribulation time is the slow dawning of the day of the Lord, and then the second coming proper is, is like in Malachi chapter 4, the first few verses. It's the sunrise of the day of the Lord. Wow. Once we get that picture straight, then then we start to, to enter into some of the passages in the Gospels that, that are talking about the coming of the Son of Man, but they're looking at it from an angle that I think is best looked at from the rapture aspect of the second coming than from the descent of the Son of Man at Armageddon angle. And because if you think about it, the rapture is going to, is not going to catch the church entirely by surprise because we're watching for it, but it's going to catch us by a mild surprise, but we're watching for it. Yes. But it's going to catch the world entirely by surprise. They have no idea the thief is coming. They're living in the darkness of unbelief. And when the rapture happens, uh, it's going to be a shocker to the world system because millions and tens of millions, maybe hundreds of millions of people are missing from around the globe. And that will be a shock to the system of the world. But that fits a thief in the night. That that fits someone coming unaware. They don't realize the house has been broken into until they realize their goods are taken. And the world's not going to realize that they've been broken into until the church is missing. But if we go to the second coming aspect of of this whole coming of the Son of Man, the thief in the night doesn't really fit because the world is ready for the second coming. The All the armies of the world, the kings of the earth, get together. They bring their armies together. They gather them for battle at Armageddon. And the world can calculate that day and hour from the middle of the week or from the beginning of the week. 
And even if things get thrown off a day or two because the heavens get discombobulated, they're still close enough for horseshoes and hand grenades. <laughs> and they're going to be there when the Lord Jesus comes, and they are insane enough through the work of the devil to think that they can beat him. So that day is not going to catch the world by surprise like a thief in the night. By that time, they already realize they've been robbed by the thief, and they're mad, and they're going to meet him in mortal combat, and they're going to get their backsides whooped. Wow. Um, yeah, and, and ladies and gentlemen, let us know what you think about this in the comments. We want to know your thoughts, your questions. And in a moment, I promise we're about to get to this, these amazing discoveries that you found by digging into the original languages and finding some things people haven't talked about that I've heard and anything that I've read concerning the teachings of the early church fathers. But first, just now let's go to the post-tribulational view. They okay. have, the post-tribulationist has had really decades of ease in a sense that, that they've had the luxury of hurling questions without ever having to answer questions of their own. So they just sit and hurl questions, and they never actually have to answer some really key theological questions, like the post-tribulation removes the possibility of the judgment seat of Christ. It removes the possibility of the separation of the sheep and the goats, a variety of things. So I wanted to ask you, what are your main problems with the post-tribulational view? Well, if if you're going to have the rapture and the second coming one and the same, mm -hmm. you already, you mentioned the sheep and goats and you, you have a problem now because at, if at the second coming, that is the rapture, all the saints are gathered, they're brought up the clouds are brought over to wherever the sheep and the goats are going to be separated and they get separated there. If all the sheep get glorified bodies and all the goats are executed and cast into hell, Who's left to inherit the kingdom? There's nobody left. Basically, the only ground that a post-tribber can go to is that there's going to be innocent kids, and, and, and that's the, basically the only half-plausible argument that they have. But that isn't the picture that we see with the sheep and the goats. Mm. The sheep and the goats is adult, mature believers yes. going into the kingdom, who are going to be ruled over by the glorified church. And that, that view was actually presented pretty clear by Irenaeus in the early church. Oh, yeah, we're going to get to that here very, very soon. Yeah, it's deep theological problems, folks, with that, because like he said, either they're saying, because people have to be in the millennium, populating the millennium, people in their flesh, the churches receive their glorified bodies. So if you're post-tribulational, that means... You either believe unsaved people are going to enter the millennium, right. which is heretical to tell people you don't have to be saved to enter into Christ's kingdom. Just hold on because people will take advantage of that all day long. Or they're saying in some way, shape or form that glorified believers are somehow going to lose that glorification and fall because at the end of the millennial kingdom, Satan is loosed and there's a whole rebellion again. Who's going to rebel then? Is it going to be Christians who have already been glorified and received their glorified body? I mean, it's so heretical and so outrageous. There's no way that you could take that position. And that's why when it comes to checking all of the boxes and answering all of the questions and not con con contradicting one another, the pre-tribulational view is the only view that really works for all of these things. Absolutely. After four decades of study and prophecy, uh, the deeper I go into it, the more books I read on both sides, the, it, the proof just gets stronger and stronger and stronger. I, I don't feel a single crack in the pre-tribulation position. I don't have a single hard question there 
that I have to jump over and ignore. The position to me is crystal clear and rock solid. Wow. Well, let's dive into the meat of, of why we got you here, because this is so outstanding. Recent pre-trip findings in the early church fathers. The book, ladies and gentlemen, the link is in the description, and it's it's meat. You need to get a copy of this book. I highly recommend it because this is one of the most common questions you're going to be getting and objections you're going to be getting to the rapture, and you can easily give an answer for it. So let's dive into this. First of all, where did this concept come from that the rapture is a new phenomenon? Well, I've heard that quite a bit since I was a babe in the Lord by anti-pre-trib people. Mm-hmm. And it, it rattles a lot of people. But I think really this is just a fairy tale that's being spread by the devil. You know, they accuse the pre-trib rapture position of being learned through a, a demon-possessed woman who had a supposed revelation from God, and she passed that on to J.N. Darby, and now everyone's believing the lie. So they're accusing the pre-trib camp of getting their position from the devil. But if, if the argument is true that error on this position was taught by the devil, well, then Haman is going to get hung on his own gallows hmm. because it's the pre-wrath rapture position that is the position that Margaret MacDonald actually held and taught. Anybody that cares about facts can go read the writings of the Irvingite movement. They can go read uh, Margaret MacDonald's own testimony. It, the, the evidence is, is, well, there's a dump truck load of evidence. Uh, it's crystal clear that the pre-trib rapture did not come from that source. So in the, it's just a lie from the devil that's trying to overthrow the truth of the pre-trib rapture. The fact is the earliest church fathers that talked about prophetic things taught a pre-tribulation rapture. Yeah, I've, I've even read Margaret McDonald's writings and the things that have been said about her th- through your teachings as well as people like Ken Johnson who are out there and kind of uncovering these things. And it's interesting, it wasn't even pre-tribulational. So if this is so demonstrably false, and we're going to get into, you've got new discoveries, but we've had references to a pre-tribulational rapture uh, in the early church fathers. I think William Watson wrote a book called Dispensationalism Before Darby, which he goes in depth on this. If it's so demonstrably false, why is it still being written about by genuine believers, you know, who I think their hearts are right, why are they still not only buying into this lie, but propagating it, even though it's, it's provably false? Well, the difficulty that we're facing, we can look at it from a couple angles. First of all, just by its prop, its ability to propagate. You know, a lie will travel around the world twice before the truth can put its pants on. Yeah. And the other thing that's interesting about this is uh, error appeals, always has a motive that it appeals to. Mm. Error typically appeals to pride so that you've got certain kinds of theological errors regarding salvation that appeal to intellectual pride. You've got certain kind of uh, error that appeals to spiritual pride, like we are the spiritual elite. And then you have error that appeals to the flesh, like, oh man, if this doctrine's true, we can live like the devil and still go to heaven. Mm-hmm. Um, so error always has a motive it appeals to. And when we're talking of, about uh prophetic error here, like the anti-pre-tribulation rapture teaching, this constantly appeals to pride 
And it also appeals to fear. It appeals to pride from the angle that don't be among those carnal people that are just mere followers of men. Follow the truth. Be the few, the proud, the post-trib rapture. And, and then, but it also appeals to fears like, what if you're wrong? But mm. folks, we don't base our theology on fear. Yeah. We base our theology on faith, and that's based on what saith the Scriptures. Wow. And so we get into the book here where you document extensively what the early church fathers wrote. So what was the impetus of this book? What caused you to first put pen to paper and begin to write it? Well, I was actually doing research for a book on the Greek word apostasia, which is, you're familiar with the controversy, 2 Thessalonians 2, 3. I've always apost- been, by the way, 4951 yep, on yep. 1-1. And so I, I love your, your your outlook on that. So I was researching that, and I'd read a, a book that was promoting the rapture view. It was a new idea to me. And I thought, well, it's, it sounds pretty cool, but I, I can't just embrace it because it sounds cool. I'm going to get to the, to the source of the problem. So I decided I'm going to research every appearance of the word apostasia in the Greek language in the original Greek documents from its first appearance until 500 AD. And it was about a two-year project. I looked at 283 instances in the original Greek, read the context, got the feel for the context, categorized them all. All of those references are in the appendices to my book on apostasia. Well, in the middle of this research, I discovered a rapture passage in Ephraim the Syrian that I was not familiar with. And I thought, you got to be kidding. Hmm. So I set my apostasia project aside, and I started going through the 150-plus Greek works of Ephraim the Syrian that are not translated into English. Uh, and Probably there's maybe a 20 now that are translated into English now, but none of his prophetic works are except the one that I translated. And I started finding pre-tribulation rapture passages. I found over three 30 rapture passages, and 10 of them were absolute crystal clear pre-trib rapture passages. Well, wait, wait. So Ephraim the Syrian, what's the date of Ephraim the Syrian? Around what time were these works written? He was in the 300s, 300s AD. People will say, you're not reading him in context. You're not reading him in context. They weren't pre-tribulational rapture people. Sounds like you read it in context. Sounds like you have a little more context than the rest of us. So as you uncovered these passages, what did you discover? Well, I discovered, for instance, that that uh, Ephraim the Syrian believed that there was going to be a rapture prior to the tribulation. He believed that Enoch and Elijah, now I think it's Moses and Elijah, but I'll let him run. So he thought <laughs> Enoch and Elijah were going to come down and preach the gospel and see more people saved during the tribulation. Mm. And uh, during the tribulation, the Antichrist was going to turn the whole world into atheists. And then the Lord was going to come down at the second coming. So he has a a rapture, a tribulation, more people saved in the tribulation, and then a second coming. He has actually a pretty thorough system of eschatology that in its main points is very similar to pre-tribulationism today. And to me, this was absolutely exciting. Now, when I first started looking at these pre-tribulation rapture passages, I was really excited, but I also knew by experience 
that it's easy in an investigation to get overly excited on the front end and then get a little egg on your face on the back end. So what I did is I gathered all these rapture passages, but I started reading his prophetic works from the first word to the last word and gathering an understanding of his general eschatology because the last thing I wanted to do was just grab a verse or two out of context, which, by the way, is what I'm accused of by the post-tribbers, Um, And they'll throw one or two verses out of context at me, but I have actually read over 30 of his prophetic works front to back in the Greek. Wow. So give us now what some of the things that you've translated here and read some of the quotes from him, and then we'll look at some other early church fathers. All right. So here's a passage from FBM on sermon on repentance and judgment and the separation of the soul from the body. And here he says, for the elect shall be gathered prior to the tribulation, so they shall not see the confusion and the great tribulation coming upon the unrighteous world. You can't state it any clearer than this. Um, Gathered prior to the tribulation, and they're not going to see the great tribulation. And by the way, the word here, confusion, um, confusion and chaos are regularly used as terms for the tribulation in the early church fathers. Wow. So I always thought we should play a game with post-tribbers and have these quotes unattributed and say, Did that, was that before Darby or after Darby? And see if they can answer the question properly. What's, what's another quote for us from him? Well, here's one from Ephraim. Uh, it's in a work called On the Second Coming of Our Lord Jesus Christ. And he actually has uh, several works by the same title that have different first lines. Um, but anyway, And here we read, they shall be seized up in the clouds to meet him, while those who are lazy and timid like me shall remain on the earth trembling. And then he goes in and in the context talks about the tribulation. Like me? What's he mean by like me? Well, this is interesting because what we're dealing with is he was in the ascetic or monastic circles, and they were always a problem there with hyper-spiritual pride and with what we would call false humility. Like if if you ever met a brother that says um, that I'm the biggest sinner on the face of the earth. And (laughs) and 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 I get uncomfortable when people tell me that because it almost feels like this is a a backhanded boast, but the, um, this is the kind of false humility that we're dealing with here. Mm. He was trying to paint his spirituality. Like he wasn't as spiritual as he should be. But the other thing that's seen here is he did believe that there were professing Christians that were going to miss the rapture. Wow. And I think that's where he's going at. Now, it was colored a little bit by his monastic hyper-spirituality, but uh, the theory is correct. There are people that think they're going up, and they're going through. Otherwise, all of the calls to watch, all of the warnings to be ready— would be useless if you're just automatically, everybody's just automatically going, no matter how you're living for the Lord. Um, So any others from him that you'd like to highlight? Yeah, here's another one. He uses different terminology. It's This is in the work on patience and the consummation of this age. And he says that we might be able to fight the good fight and tread down all the power of the enemy, that we might be delivered from the wrath coming upon the sons of disobedience. So here again, He's got a little bit of this performance aspect in there that's more than most of us would be comfortable with. 
Mm. Uh, some of us are not comfortable at all with that performance-based aspect yes. in the gospel. But he does understand the fact that there are people that are going to be professing to be Christians that are not fighting the, the good fight of faith at, at any level at all, and they are going to go through the wrath of God. But the people that are actually real, that are, that are actually fighting the good fight of faith, that we're not talking about what degree they're fighting it, just the fact of fighting it, um, that they are going to be delivered from the wrath. So when it comes this time, he calls it the tribulation. He calls it the great tribulation. He calls it the wrath of God. He calls it the judgment of God. He's got a number of titles for it. He's got a very diverse uh, vocabulary to, to explain it. So that's really to be an encouragement that we are understanding his eschatology correctly. Yeah, because there's a lot of people who say the, the early church fathers had a very different eschatology than what we have today. They they looked at things you couldn't that you can't really categorize them like you would us today. The categories we use today. Where would you place him as far as would you say that he is consistently pre-tribulational in his teachings? Absolutely, he's Without very question. consistently pre-tribulational, um, and so was Irenaeus, and so were a few of the other early fathers. The difficulty that we're facing is when we get into the church age, by the time we get into the fourth century, which is the 300s, most of the church fathers had already been bullied into the amillennial position. Mm. And what's interesting is Ephraim the Syrian was himself amillennial. But this actually is, a, um, is actually a, an encouragement to me, because what it tells me is that we had two battles that were being fought over the allegorical interpretation of Scripture. And the church lost the millennial battle first and lost the pre-trib rapture battle second. So they held on to the pre-trib rapture a lot longer than they held on to the literal millennium. Wow, that's fascinating. So let's talk about uh, Iranius, who you just mentioned. Yes. Uh, what were his writings, and around what date were they written, and what did he have to say? Well, Irenaeus was in the early in, in the early two uh, second century, so he was writing like in the one twenty to one fifty era. In there, he was born in AD one thirty in Smyrna, which is modern Izmir, Turkey, and he died around AD two hundred. So he was in from uh, like the the second two thirds of the second century. And his main work was Against Heresies, which is in five volumes. Uh, the original Greek is lost for most of it. We have a Latin translation that is pretty accurate. I have Harvey's set, which I have been able to use. He has the whole Latin there, plus wherever there's the Greek is available, I've used the Greek. But in many ways, Irenaeus is ground zero for the pre-trib rapture question in the early church, because... Hmm. Irenaeus was the first uh, father to write extensively on Bible prophecy. And it's very interesting because Irenaeus didn't just merely teach a pre-tribulation rapture. He was actually what we would regard as a dispensationalist. He made a clear distinction between Israel and the church. He saw Israel in the, in the temple uh, offering sacrifices during the tribulation. He saw the church going up. He's got four passages that are clear pre-trib rapture passages. And he makes a, a distinction uh, very clearly between that rapture and the second coming. 
Now, when you say dispensationalist, just to define that for us, what yeah. is, because there's a lot of swirling going on of people talking about the errancy of dispensationalism and it's not in the Bible, that kind of thing. You kind of defined it in your description there, but to put a finer point on it, how would you define dispensationalism from a biblical perspective? Well, it's definitely not a straitjacket that men force upon the Scriptures because the essence of dispensationalism is simply believing that the promises that God made to the Israel, to the nation and people of Israel in the Old Testament are going to be literally fulfilled to the people and nation of Israel. Mm. So it's making a clear distinction between Israel and the Gentile-based church of this age. And so if a passage is talking about Israel, it means Israel. If it's talking about the church, it means church. And we don't conflate them. We distinguish them. That's the essence of dispensationalism. So dispensationalism is simply taking the scriptures uh, literally when it comes to Bible prophecy as opposed to allegorically. Now, once you get past that, men differ on secondary points because there are some points that are relatively difficult to work through and wrestle through. But those points are not the essence of dispensationalism. They're just details. The oh, that's refreshing to hear. It becomes so convoluted. You know, yeah. it becomes so convoluted. And, and whenever you attach yourself to a doctrine, like when people say dispensationalism, you have no idea all the luggage or baggage that comes along with that. And it's, it's refreshing to hear you kind of distill it down to that, that simplicity. So what did he say to make you believe he's a dispensationalist or that he believed in a pre-tribulational rapture? Well, for instance... Uh, let me read this here. In Against Heresies, uh, which would be book 5, chapter 34, section 1, he says, Now I have shown a short time ago that the church is the seed of Abraham, and for this reason that we may know that he who in the New Testament raises up from the stones children unto Abraham is he who will gather, according to the Old Testament, those that shall be saved from all the nations, Jeremiah says, Behold, the days come, says the Lord, that they shall no more say, The Lord lives who brought up the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt, but the Lord lives who led the children of Israel from the north and from every region where they have been driven. He will restore them to their land in which he gave to their fathers. Now, so this is confusing to some people because he uses the word church in a little broader sense than we do. When we use the word church, we're distinguishing Israel and the church. But when he uses the word church, he has the Old Testament church and the New Testament church under one umbrella heading. So you actually have to go read Irenaeus to, to understand how he uses the word church before you can understand passages like this. Once you see that he uses it for an umbrella, now here he's making a clear distinction between the people of the New Testament and the people of the Old Testament. And he goes into other passages on the same subject and he clarifies the distinction. But he definitely believes that God is going to be going back to the people of the Old Testament and gather them from every nation where they were scattered. Wow. And all of these, by the way, ladies and gentlemen, are extensively quoted in the book. The link is in the description. Do you have some more from Irenaeus? Yes. You got me saying it. I've always said Irenaeus. You've already got me changing how I say it, Irenaeus. Yeah, well, to be honest, it's it's got both Irenaeus and Irenaeus. I've heard it both from the, the academic world. And so I thought, well, if if they're not uh, uniform on the pronunciation, I like Irenaeus, so I'm going <laughs> to run with it. Well, give us some more from him. Yes. I'm going to give you the rapture. Well, here's uh, 
a passage on Jews in the tribulation, and then we'll look at a couple of his pre-trib rapture passages. In uh, book 5, chapter 24, uh, section 4, or chapter 25, section 4, he says, A king of a most fierce countenance shall arise. Then he points out the time that his tyranny shall last, during which the saints shall be put to flight. Now, listen here, he's going to clarify this. They who offer a pure sacrifice unto God. In the midst of the week, the sacrifice and libation shall be taken away, and the abomination of desolation shall be brought into the temple, even until the consummation of time shall the desolation be complete. So you can't say this is to be taken figuratively of figurative sacrifices offered by the church in the tribulation. He's very clear that this is people who are offering literal sacrifices to God, and those sacrifices are regarded as pure in God's eyes. This is, and this is the sacrifice is going to be stopped with the abomination of desolation when the Antichrist uh, sits in the temple. So he's got practicing Jews in the tribulation, and God honors that practiced Judaism. When we come to the pre-tribulation rapture, Here's a, an amazing passage. It's book 5, uh, chapter 29, section 1. And therefore, in the end, when the church is suddenly caught up from this, and the this is the context mentioned prior, which is the ugly tribulation type context, then it is said, uh, the, the, the context that's leading up to the tribulation. So let me start over. Therefore, in the end, when the church is suddenly caught up from this, it is said, there shall be tribulation such as has not been since the beginning, neither shall be. For this is the last contest of the righteous in which when they overcome, they are crowned with incorruption. So I want you to notice, the church is going to be suddenly caught up, and then it's in the future tense after this. Then there shall be tribulation. So if you have the, the participle of activity that's involved with the church being suddenly removed, and then the main verb is in the future tense. That main verb then follows that participle in, in the flow of time. So the church goes up first, and then the tribulation follows. Okay, here's one on Enoch. In Against Heresies, book 5, chapter 5, verse 1, Enoch's translation is presented as an illustration of the rapture. For Enoch, when he pleased God, was translated in the same body in which he did please him, thus pointing out by anticipation the translation of the just. Wherefore also the elders, the old men, who were disciples of the apostles, told us that those who are translated are translated to that place, for paradise has been prepared for righteous men, such as have the Spirit, in which Paul also the apostle, when he is caught up, heard unspeakable words, and that those who have been translated shall remain there until the consummation, or the end. And this is a prelude to incorruptibility. So this passage is amazing. There's going to be a translation of the just that parallels the translation of Enoch. That translation takes them to glory, takes them to the same place that Paul went by a vision, takes them to place the paradise above, and they're going to stay in glory, going to stay in heaven until the end when the Lord Jesus comes back down in judgment. And so they get incorruptibility 
as a prelude or a foretaste of the incorruptibility that the other saints get at the second coming. Wow. Thrilling to see this. And I don't know why no one talks about this. No one knows about this. I guess we need someone like you to dig through all of these Greek manuscripts and find it for us. Um, Kind of to, everybody has to get the book, by the way. Everybody has to get it. The link is in the description if you want all the details. Are there any others like Eusebius or others that jump out to you that before we leave here today that you would want to share with us? Yeah, let me read a couple of the Eusebius passages because basically when I found this stuff, there was already one Ephraim, the Syrian rapture passage, so people were familiar that he may have been or probably was a pre-tribber. And people knew that Irenaeus was pre-trib, but they only were familiar with the one passage. They weren't familiar with the three that I discovered. So when we come to Eusebius, we find some very interesting things here. And nobody knew that Eusebius was a pre-tribber. When I first brought this out, the scholarly dispensational world was flabbergasted. They were shocked. So So who was Eusebius then? Before you read to us these passages, who was he and when did he live? He was an influential apologist and and, uh, shepherd in the late 200s and the early 300s. So he, he was born around 265 A.D. and died around 340 A.D., He's best known for his work, Ecclesiastical History. He, um, and the Ecclesiastical History appears in a lot of sets of the church fathers where they've translated prominent works in English, so people are familiar with that. But he's got a couple dozen works that are in Greek that are not translated into English, and in those works is where I found the rapture passages. So here's one from Fragments in the Book of Luke. Uh, based on Luke 17, 26, where we read, The cataclysm of the, un- of the destruction of the ungodly shall not happen before those men who are found of God at that time are gathered into the ark and mm. saved according to the pattern of Noah. All the righteous and godly are to be separated from the ungodly and gathered into the heavenly ark of God. You can't get any clearer than this. Such a beautiful illustration, too. Because people will say, well, we're going to be like Noah, and we're going to ride through the tribulation. He didn't escape the tribulation. We're going to ride through it. But Eusebius is saying that Noah was shut up supernaturally, taken up into the ark in the same way that we will be raptured and taken up to be with Christ. What I like to tell people is when you're talking about the days of Noah, uh, the, the taking up of the heavenly people in the heavenly ark and then the prepping of the earthly people that are going to go through the tribulation on the earthly ark to be preserved through the tribulation. Those things are not going to happen that far apart. And so this whole picture actually fits both very, very beautifully. Any other passages in the book that you'd like to highlight? Yeah, here's one more. This is another awesome one from uh, also from the fragments of Luke, Luke 18. And there we read, Suddenly... There shall not even be one because some have been taken and the others left behind delivered to the eagles. Hmm. Now, what's interesting about this, in the early church fathers, there was a debate over who was taken and who was left, just like there is today. But what's interesting 
is you've got pre-tribbers back then on both sides of the equation, and you have pre-tribbers today on both sides of the equation. Not much has changed. That's right. And this book is going to help walk people through what they taught, what the early church fathers taught. You're going to get it in context. You're going to get all the quotes. You're going to know when it was done. The link is in the description. Lee, in a moment, I want to ask you the most important question I could ask you this entire discussion interview. And then later, you and I are going to head on over to the premium section because I want to talk to you about aliens and the rapture and the potential connection between those two things and and how the rapture is going to be described by the world, how they're going to react to it, respond to it. We'll dive into that a little bit over there. Ladies and gentlemen, if you'd like to be a part of that uncensored conversation, go to EncounterToday.com and become a premium member. But here's the most important question, Lee. For those who are watching this, and the reality of the imminence of the rapture is, is dawning in their hearts and in their minds, how can we be ready to meet him in the air when he comes? Well, the first question that has to be asked is, am I born again? Mm -hmm. Do I know the Lord Jesus? Does he know me? If you're not certain, maybe you've been going to church and you're going to a church that's not Bible-based church, or maybe you were raised in a Bible-believing church and you've just walked your own way and gone your own way. No matter what the reason is, just get on your face before the Lord. You don't have to literally be on your face, but you need to be in your heart on your face before the Lord. Just confess your sins. Confess you went your own way and ask the Lord Jesus to forgive your sins. Everybody that comes to him, all who call upon him shall be saved. All who come unto me, I shall in no wise cast out. He's not going to turn you away. And he, he wants to save every last human being on the planet. So just turn to him and trust him as the only way of salvation. Now, if you're a backslidden believer and you're not ready, just get ready. Mm. Th th this isn't a deep question. It's just a matter of turning to the Lord and saying, Lord, I'm sorry. Yes. And I want to be watching. I want to be ready. I don't want to be ashamed when that rapture trumpet blows. And, and just apologize. This isn't a deep theological question. This is just you and dad sitting down and having a chat. That's so good. And your father, like with the prodigal, is going to run out to meet you. Amen. The moment you set your heart to turn back towards him. And with the heart man believes, but with the mouth, confession is made to salvation. I only want you to say in the comments, yes, I've prayed that prayer. I've given my life to Jesus and I want to be ready. I want you to call someone. I want Amen. you to turn to somebody, find someone, and tell them that you've given your life back to Jesus Christ or to Jesus Christ for the first time. And in that declaration, something's going to happen. Something Amen. liberating is going to take place. And you're going to find your family in the body of Christ. And if you need help with that, you reach out to us at EncounterToday.com, and we'll stand with you, pray with you, help you find a good church for you to be a part of. Lee, I want to keep this conversation going, but I can't, on the premium side of things, but I can't thank you enough for your Amen. research and your, your, your amazing, amazing heart for allowing this generation to fall in love with the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, you know, just a closing thought to encourage the believers. When I was a young believer, I saw a lot of people they just felt like they had to choose between going down an academic scholarly path or going down a path of just being a simple wholehearted believer. And I determined as a young believer, I was never going to accept that false dichotomy because mm. the highest scholarship and the most zealous devotion with childlike faith fit hand and glove together. Those two things should be happily married, not happily 
are unhappily divorced. That's the true balance. That seems like to be a running theme in a lot of the interviews I'm doing. That God is calling the Spirit and the Word. Amen. We bring those two together. We've got Spirit churches and we got Word churches. But the Word without the Spirit can be dead legalism. The Spirit without the Word can be out of control emotionalism. But yep. if we can bring the two together, maybe we'll have some revivalism. Maybe we'll and have. I, I was an talking to a preacher brother just a few weeks back. We were talking about this very subject. And I said, Brother, we are not going to see a Holy Spirit revival in the last days like we want to see until we see a revival of the Word of God in the last days. We have a revival of the Word of God in the last days, and God will take care of the rest, and we will explode with blessing. Wow. Come on. I feel that. I, I know that to be true. I know it to be true, and I believe it's happening right now with your work here as well. So, ladies and gentlemen, please, the link is in the description of this video. Recent pre-trib findings in the early church fathers. Lee Brander, we're going to head over and continue this conversation and get a little uncensored about end-time events, but thank you so much for being with us on Encounter Today. And thank you for the opportunity, brother, to fellowship with you, your team, and the whole family of God. Ah, I love this so much. Love this conversation. Love the scholarship. If you love it, let us know in the comments and share this with as many people as possible, and we'll see you over at EncounterToday.com. God bless. If you believe we have crashed craft, as uh, stated earlier, do we have the bodies of the pilots who piloted this craft? As I've stated publicly already in my News Nation interview, uh, biologics came with some of these recoveries. Yeah. Were they, I guess, human or non-human biologics? He asked me point blank, have you read your Bible lately? And I said, well, sir, I think I know what it says. And he said, well, then you would know that these things are, are demonic. turns out that actually, yes, these things have been shot down and crashed, and the U.S. government has the wreckage. There's just no question that some of the reports seem to tell of the sort of thing that you find in poltergeist phenomena. I mean, with artificial intelligence, we are summoning the demon. 